Today's selection from Calvert Library's digital collection is Empty Mansions, The Mysterious Life of Udgat Clark and the Spending of a Great American Fortune by Bill Dedman and Paul Clark Newell, Jr. Introduction We came to this story by separate paths, one of us by accident and one by birth. Bill Dedman I stumbled into the mysterious world of Uget Clark because my family was looking for a house, and I got a little out of our price range. In 2009, my wife's job had been transferred from Boston to New York City, but we wanted to keep in touch with the charms and idiosyncrasies of New England. Old stone walls, colonial houses on country corners, thrifty Yankees who save an R sound by keeping their wool socks in a draw yet put the R to good use when they drawer a picture. While renting, we looked at small towns in Connecticut, about an hour northeast of the Empire State Building. Although property values had plunged in the Great Recession, houses came in only two flavors, those we didn't like and those we couldn't afford. One evening, frustration turned to distraction. I began to scan the online listings for houses we really couldn't afford, an exercise in American aspiration. Although some names were familiar, professional talkers Don Imus and Phil Donahue were having trouble selling waterfront mansions on Long Island Sound, other names sent me to Google. One fellow had been able to purchase an $8 million house by selling boxers and briefs on the internet. Buy underwear in your underwear. I was gobsmacked, however, by the property at the top of the charts. The most expensive house for sale in Connecticut, in the Tony town of New Canaan, was priced at $24 million, marked down from $35 million. Billed as Le Beau Chateau, the beautiful castle, this charmer had 14,266 square feet of floor space, tucked into 52 wooded acres with a river and a waterfall. Its 22 rooms included nine bedrooms, nine baths, 11 fireplaces, a wine cellar, elevator, trunk room, walk-in safe, and a room for drying the draperies. The property taxes alone were $161,000 a year, or about four years income for a typical American family. I didn't recognize the name of the owner, Uget Clark. Was that a he or a she? There was an odd note in the records on the town's website. Le Beau Chateau had been unoccupied since this owner bought it in 1951. That couldn't be right. Who could afford to own such a house and not live in it for nearly 60 years? And why would anyone do that? A beautiful castle wasn't quite in the job description of an investigative reporter, but the next morning I drove over to New Canaan. On a winding, narrow lane called Dan's Highway was a tiny handmade marker for number 104 and a warning sign, private property, no trespassing, violators will be prosecuted. Behind a low red brick wall with white peeling paint sat two tiny brick cottages. Between them, a driveway ran under a rusty gate into the trees and curved out of sight. If there was a beautiful fairy tale castle, it was deep in the wood. 
The property showed no sign of humans, only wild turkey, deer, and birds. It seemed more like a nature preserve than a home. There was no mailbox, no name, no buzzer. Leaning over the wall, I rapped on the window of one of the cottages. Out shuffled an unshaven man in his white undershirt, a sleepy fellow who introduced himself as the caretaker, Tony Rigario. Eighty years old, but muscled, he said he used to be a boxer and had sparred once with Rocky Marciano, but now he was watching over Mrs. Clark's house. He wouldn't open the gate, but he said the house, though empty, was well cared for. He'd never met the owner in more than 20 years. All he knew was that the paycheck came from her lawyer in New York City. Rogario thought of something and ducked back inside. He brought out a newspaper clipping from the New York Post. An auction house had sold a painting for $23.5 million, Renoir's In the Roses, of a woman seated on a bench in a garden. And the newspaper said the portrait came from the estate of Uget Clark. Rogario kept pointing out those words, the estate of. Let me ask you a question, he said. Do you suppose she's been dead all these years? Finding Uget Clark's name on an internet discussion board from Southern California, I discovered that Le Beau Chateau wasn't her only orphaned house. She had a second, grander home in Santa Barbara, a vacation estate on 23 clifftop acres fronting the Pacific Ocean. But this home was definitely not for sale. A newspaper said she had turned down $100 million some years back. The lush estate was called Belos Gardo, meaning beautiful lookout. According to the internet chatter, Huguet had not been seen there in at least 50 years, but the 21,666-square-foot mansion was immaculately kept, with 1930s sedans still in the garage, and the table set just in case the owner should visit. Though I didn't put much stock in the tale, my curiosity was piqued. Out in Santa Barbara for a business trip a while later, I tried to visit Belosgardo, the property is hidden on a bluff, separated by a high wall from the Santa Barbara Cemetery, allowing even the dead barely a glimpse at the great house. The back gate to Belascardo was open, however, so I walked up the serpentine driveway. At the top of the hill, several gardeners were at work. The main house was out of sight, behind a stand of trees. Suddenly, a golf cart barreled toward me, driven by a sturdy man in his fifties, giving instructions on a walkie-talkie. He identified himself as the estate manager, C. John Douglas III, and pointed out the half-dozen no-trespassing signs. As he sent me back down the driveway, mentioning something about the police, he divulged only two facts. He had worked for Mrs. Clark for more than 25 years, and he had never met her. Talking through the locked gate, Douglas was in no mood to help solve the mystery. I'm just sorry, he said dismissively. That is what you have to do to put food on the table for your children. My family was indeed worrying a bit about curiosity getting the best of me. After all, my wife and I did meet during a prison riot, two journalists breaking into the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary to get a better view of the hostages. After I told my brother, a movie buff, about the empty mansions and the search for the mysterious owner, he sent an email with a whispered word, Rosebud. Sure, make fun. But 
Where was Uget Clark? Where did these vast sums of money come from? And why were they being wasted? Public records led me to a third residence. Uget Clark owned not one, but three apartments in a classic limestone building in New York City at 907 Fifth Avenue, overlooking Central Park at 72nd Street. It's a neighborhood of legend and fantasy, near the statue of Alice in Wonderland and the pond where the boy mouse Stuart Little raced sailboats. Yes, sir, said number 907's uniform doorman in his Russian accent. This is Madame Clark's building. But no, he hadn't seen Madame or any other Clarks for about 20 years, although he had carried groceries for Martha Stewart, who had a pied-à-terre in the same building. He shrugged, as if to say, doormen see a lot of strange things. Neighbors and real estate agents filled in a few details. Uget Clark's apartments took up the entire eighth floor of the building and half the twelfth, or top floor, for a grand total of 42 rooms and 15,000 square feet on Fifth Avenue, the most fashionable street in the most expensive city in America. Her bill from the co-op board for taxes and maintenance was $342,000 a year, or $28,500 a month. Although they'd never seen Uget Clark, neighbors said they'd heard her apartments were filled with an amazing collection of dolls and dollhouses, and paintings too, even a Monet. One neighbor let me into the quiet elevator lobby of Uget's eighth floor, where rolls of surplus carpet were stored. I rang the buzzer, and no one answered. It didn't seem like a place where anyone would keep a Monet. So this Uget Clark owned homes altogether nearly the size of the White House. Where on earth did she reside? And why did she keep paying for this fabulous real estate if she wasn't using it? If I couldn't find out where Uget was, then perhaps I could at least discover who she was. It turned out that I had wandered through a portal into America's past, long past. Uget Clark, then 103 years old, was the heiress to one of America's greatest fortunes, dug out of the copper mines of Montana and Arizona, the copper that carried electricity to the world. Her father, William Andrews Clark, sounded like the embodiment of the American dream, a Pennsylvania farm boy born in a log cabin, a prospector for gold, a banker, and a U.S. senator from Montana. W.A. Clark was also a railroad baron, connecting the transcontinental lines to a sleepy California port called Los Angeles. And along the way, he auctioned off the lots that became downtown Las Vegas. The newspapers of the early 1900s couldn't decide who was the wealthiest man in America in that age before personal income tax. The New York Times calculated in 1907 that if you counted only the money already in the banks, oilman John D. Rockefeller was tops. However, if you also included the wealth still to be brought up from underground, the Times decided that Copper King W.A. Clark might prove to be richer than Rockefeller. W.A. Clark also had one of the more controversial political careers in American history. He was forced to resign from the U.S. Senate for paying bribes to get the seat in the first place. Undeterred, he was re-elected. While serving in the Senate in 1904, the widower with grown children shocked the political world by revealing a secret marriage to a woman 39 years his junior. 
At the time of the announcement, the senator and Anna LaChapelle Clark already had a two-year-old daughter, Andre. The woman I was looking for in 2009, Uget Clark, was the second child of that marriage, born in 1906 in Paris. So the name was French, Uget. The pronunciation took some getting used to, and my southern accent still has trouble with it. I'm told that the French U doesn't exist in English. It's not Huguet with an initial H sound, nor Uget with a Y, but somewhere close to Uget. When W.A. Clark died in 1925, he left an estate estimated at $100 million to $250 million, worth up to $3.4 billion today. One-fifth of the estate went to 18-year-old Uget, who was depicted in cartoons as a spoiled poor little rich girl. In the histories and magazine cover stories of his time, the word most often associated with W.A. Clark was incredible. But after his death, his businesses were sold and the Clark name faded. He may be the most famous American whom most Americans today have never heard of. Now, Uget, who inherited one-fifth of the copper mining fortune, also was missing. The length of history spanned by father and daughter is hard to comprehend. W.A. Clark was born in 1839 during the administration of the eighth president of the United States, Martin Van Buren. W.A. was 22 when the Civil War began. When Uget was born in 1906, Theodore Roosevelt, the 26th president, was in the White House. Yet 170 years after W.A.'s birth, his youngest child was still alive at age 103 during the time of the 45th president, Barack Obama. Well, still alive, as far as I knew. In researching stories about Uget for the NBC News website, I gradually pieced together that she was indeed alive and had been living for 20 years in self-imposed exile in hospital rooms in Manhattan, although she was said to be in good health. For her own reasons, she had separated herself from the world. She was so reclusive that one of her attorneys, who had handled her business for more than 20 years, had never spoken to her face to face, talking to her only on the phone and through closed doors. And that was, for me, the end of the hunt. I wrote about the mansion mystery, but wasn't going to barge into a shy old woman's hospital room. Then, readers started emailing me with hints of something nefarious, and the mansion mystery morphed into a criminal investigation. One of Uget's possessions, one of the rarest violins in the world, a Stradivarius, had been sold for $6 million, and the buyer had been made to promise that he wouldn't tell anyone for a decade where he got it. Meanwhile, a nurse had somehow received millions of dollars in gifts from Huguet's accounts. Huguet's accountant was a felon and a registered sex offender, caught trolling to meet teenage girls over the internet. And that accountant, along with Huguet's attorney, had already inherited the property of another elderly client. After my updates about these developments, the Manhattan District Attorney had the same questions our readers did. Why would Uget be selling precious possessions unless she was down to her last copper? Was this eccentric centenarian 
who had lived in a hospital for 20 years, competent to manage her affairs, were her attorney and accountant in line to inherit her fortune, said to be worth more than $300 million. The reclusive heiress, who had withdrawn from the world, suddenly had the modern media machine at her doorstep. Ugette Clark was featured on the Today Show and on page one of the New York tabloids. Although she had been born in the silent film era, she became, after her 104th birthday, a trending topic of searches on Google and Yahoo. With a biography on Wikipedia, fan pages on Facebook, and a lavish story on the front page of the New York Times. Ugette had been famous in her childhood and was famous again more than a century later. But in between, she'd been a phantom. The last known photograph of her, a snapshot of an uncomfortable heiress in furs, jewels, and a cloche hat in the fashionable bell shape, had been taken in 1928. She had managed to escape the world's gaze since then. How? And more importantly, why? Urging further investigation, one of Ugette's own bankers confided in me. The whole story is utterly mysterious, but equally frightening. It has all the markings of a massive fraud. Poor Miss Clark sounds like one in a long list of rich, isolated old ladies taken advantage of by supposedly trustworthy advisors. If that's what really happened. If you enjoyed this chapter and are hungry for more, this title is available as an ebook and audiobook on Libby by Overdrive. If you're enjoying Book Bites, please don't forget to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if there are books or genres you'd like to hear, please let us know via email at calvertlibrarybookbites at gmail.com. Visit calvertlibrary.info for more information. And stay tuned for more Book Bites.